Black September was the name of the Palestinian militant organization who was responsible for the deaths of 11 Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. Two were murdered in the initial attack on the Olympic Village, and the remaining nine died in a shootout between the terrorists and German police. Even though all five members of Black September were also killed, the organization wasn't done taking hostages. The following year, the group stormed the Saudi embassy in Khartoum, this time taking 10 captives, including three Westerners. U.S. President at the time, Richard Nixon, was asked at a press conference how the American government would respond to the attack. And he replied, seemingly off the cuff, that there could be no negotiation with terrorists. Twelve hours later, after being allowed to write final letters to their wives, the three Western hostages were killed. Since then, the policy of not negotiating with terrorists has become all but impossible to row back, becoming integral to U.S. and U.K. foreign policy doctrine. So in the United States, Nixon is responsible for the origins of our strict, we will not negotiate with terrorists. Is that a good Nixon? That was pretty, that was pretty good. (laughs) We will not negotiate with terrorists as a policy. Um, And nowadays it's a little more codified than that. In the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, it states, the U.S. government will make no concessions to terrorists. It will not pay ransoms, release prisoners, change its policies, or agree to other acts that might encourage additional terrorism. At the same time, the United States will use every available resource to gain the safe return of American citizens who are held hostage by terrorists. Every available resource except negotiation. Yeah, exactly. So not every available resource, more like a third of available resources. Um, This we never negotiate with terrorists seems like a really just jingoistic rallying cry that's generally accepted, but rarely examined, at least not in the United States. So because we are controversial on this podcast, that is exactly what we're here to do today. We're going to look at some of the motivations behind the policy, counter arguments, and several case studies of where this policy has seemed to work, where it hasn't, and where, despite how forcefully our leaders repeat it, we've seemed to just ignore it. And the United States isn't the only country with a stance on not negotiating with terrorists. The United Kingdom shares a very similar doctrine, and other countries around the world, including Nigeria, have their own non-negotiation policies. In Nigeria, recently, April of this year, they have outlawed the paying of ransom to kidnappers and made kidnapping punishable by death in cases where the victim dies. And then paying a ransom to those kidnappers can be penalized by 15 years in prison. And I think this is interesting because, A, it's not just that the government isn't negotiating with, you know, quote, terrorists. It's also making it illegal for citizens to do so. In contrast, in 2015, President Obama said that the United States would not prosecute families that pay ransoms to terrorists. So while the U.S. federal government wouldn't be negotiating, if individual families wanted to pay ransoms, they wouldn't be prosecuted for doing so. And in order to take a more harsh stance on this particular action in Nigeria, the government began reclassifying the gangs that were typically doing the kidnapping as terrorists. The definition of what a terrorist is can sometimes be pretty nebulous. Mm -hmm. So even though specific policies might vary country to country around the world, the motivations behind them are relatively similar. And I think that there's probably three general motivations that countries share in implementing a policy of non-negotiation. First of all, if they don't encourage the activity, people won't do it. Second of all, to avoid funding organizations that might use that money for nefarious means. And third of all, to avoid giving a voice to organizations uh, who use violence as a means of getting what they want. 
The first motivation behind this pretty harsh stance on negotiation seems fairly obvious that if we don't give in to the demands, they wouldn't they wouldn't be in a position where they would be making demands at all because they would know it never works. Right. If the only possible outcome of kidnapping somebody or trying to negotiate through terror is SEAL Team 6 busting through the windows of your secret bad guy hideout, uh, you're probably not going to attempt that sort of action. The metaphorical SEAL Team 6 that the Nigerian government is using is the automatic death penalty, as we've mentioned, if the hostage dies, which I believe would actually disincentivize a lot of kidnapping in that country. It remains to be seen since it's such a new law, how much of an effect that will have. But if I was potentially a Nigerian kidnapper, I think I would maybe think twice about actually engaging in kidnapping, knowing that there could be a death penalty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the idea behind this policy being so black and white is you literally have only two outcomes. If you are a terrorist, and you are looking to kidnap somebody or attack somebody in order to try and achieve your ends, there's only two ways it plays out. Black is <laughs> you die, death penalty if the hostage dies, government comes in and SEAL Team 6 is you, or white, you take it, you attempt, you think better of your actions, you give the person back, and then you probably don't ever do it again. And People considering the same action in the future don't even do it in the first place. That would be a pretty compelling disincentive for these types of activities if it was only one kind of thing that we're talking about with the demands that terrorists have and the kinds of motivations behind their behavior. But in the instance when a terrorist is doing something without a monetary benefit, then it becomes a little bit more complicated for how to disincentivize that behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, terrorist demands can be quite varied. It's not just money that they're looking for. They could be asking for things like prisoner exchange. Um, potentially, the U.S. government, for example, has somebody from their organization locked up uh, to policy change or troop removal, for example. Some of the countries that we occupy, if an American troop or journalist gets kidnapped, organizations might be looking to trade their return for American troops leaving their particular region. And in other instances, there are what are called spoilers, which are terrorist attacks that are deliberately undertaken to disrupt peace talks between interested parties. And this is the issue that was of concern during the Northern Ireland troubles in the 90s. The ability to actually negotiate in this sense is a little bit diminished because the element of a spoiler attack is that it, it comes as a surprise. So what's more effective in handling that kind of terrorism is preempting it with a lot of declarations about a zero tolerance policy that all sides of the peace process have to agree upon so that you no know, one party is engaging in peace talks, but somebody else is carrying out violence on their behalf would not be acceptable in those circumstances. These situations can be complicated even further by the fact that different people who have the same goals, in this case, Irish independence, might be looking to go about it in different ways. So if we have two different organizations, let's say Sinn Féin and the IRA, for example, in Ireland, who both want independence, but one is seeking predominantly to achieve that through political ends, whereas the other sees violence as the appropriate road to meet their goals. It can be difficult as an outside actor, say the British government, in how do we interact with these two organizations. So say they get into, like you mentioned, Kelly, peace talks with one group, and then the other group commits a terrorist act, one of these, quote, spoilers. Do they allow that to derail the peace talks? Seemingly, that would incentivize further violence. But at the same time, how do you stay in peace talks with an organization that's attacking you, committing violence, while engaging in, quote, unquote, peaceful negotiations? That is the question, is how much of an influence are the targets of terrorism going to let terrorism have over their own goals 
which are typically counter to the terrorist goals. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what makes a situation like this. You mentioned it's not always about money. And even when it is about money, oftentimes the money is there as a tool to achieve ideological ends. But regardless, oftentimes these ideologues are willing to risk their lives. Suicide bombers might be the most obvious example of this. They are so committed to a particular cause, they have absolutely nothing to lose. And in that instance, how do we negotiate with somebody like that? Exactly. They've already been sold on the idea that whatever they're fighting for is worth sacrificing their own life. So there's nothing we could offer in a negotiation that would disincentivize them from carrying out that action. They typically have been given a lot of persuasive indoctrination into the cause and then the rewards that may await them should they carry out the act. We could try to negotiate, try to bring them back to reality and let them know that no cause is worth dying for, perhaps. But I think that's a situation where there's really no effective tools on a persuasive level. And so this would seem to suggest there's literally no point to negotiating. But at the same time, I think a lot of people who find themselves in that situation, the reason they're in that situation is because they see themselves as having no other recourse. In such an asymmetrical relationship between, let's just say, somebody in Ireland who believes strongly in independence, the values of independence, and they as one person is confronted with the full power of the British Empire, it seems like such a hopeless situation that that maybe their only recourse is violence. If we tell them that there is the possibility of negotiation or there is the possibility of diplomacy, then maybe they're not backed into a corner so extremely. Maybe they do seek out other means rather than kidnapping or terrorism. More to the point of preventing this from happening in the first place, a lot of times that people are susceptible to the types of indoctrination that leads to something like a suicide bombing is being in a situation of economic and social desperation due to things outside of their control. If we take a better stance ahead of time on getting people access to resources, they tend to maybe have less alienation from the society that they would later seek to destroy in a terroristic fashion. A terroristic fashion. (laughs) Is that a word? I don't know. You know, I'm a fan of making up words. I like that terroristic. I saw that guy on the TV the other day. Oh, that guy looked terroristic. I now I have to see if it's a word. It doesn't matter if that's the point. You you can make up whatever it is. Huh. I don't make up words. I use real ones. Oh, I like to make them up. All right. Now I'm less impressed by it. Terroristic. Sounds like a dinosaur. And this all assumes that these terrorists also have a plan in place, which when it comes to kidnapping is not always the case. Oftentimes, kidnapping is a crime of opportunity. There's the foreign national. Grab them while we can. And then let's see what we can get out of it. <laughs> these, these organizations aren't taking time to check the passports before they decide to kidnap somebody and kind of see what the policy of that person's home country is. And if it's just a crime of opportunity like this, then it doesn't really matter what our policy is. It's not going to deter it. I'm just thinking about a terrorist or a kidnapper picking up somebody whose family hates them. <laughs> Good luck ever getting a ransom out of them. <laughs> right. One of the motivations of terrorism is to get financial resources to help fund terrorism. This would involve weapons, supplies, other logistical tools for coordination, travel, things like that. Anything that the United States or other countries would hand over in order to seek the release of somebody could potentially be converted into something that is used against the United States in the future in the form of weapons or personal attacks. Yeah, something like, I mean, to use the most obvious example, something like 9-11 is incredibly expensive. And if if these organizations don't have the funds to put together an attack like that, they can't do an attack like that. I mean, plain and simple. And one of the ways that they look to receive these funds is through hostage-taking and subsequent negotiation. For example... I think this is a really interesting case study. In 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria 
affectionately known as ISIS, managed to kidnap 23 Western hostages from countries like Spain, France, and Italy, as well as the United States and the United Kingdom. All of the victims' families ended up receiving financial demands, and this ends up being a a fascinating and terrifying case study to compare the different approaches of different nations. Because the aforementioned European countries do not share the stance of the United States and the UK when it comes to negotiating with terrorists. In fact, ISIS received ransoms for 15 out of the 23 hostages from all of those countries, and all 15 of them were released. So this just left the Americans and the British hostages, along with one Russian, behind. Eventually, all of those remaining victims had their executions videotaped as they were beheaded on camera as a part of an ISIS propaganda campaign. What's really striking about this is it basically comes down to the the lottery of where you happen to be born in this situation, determining whether or not you're going to live because of your government's stance on how they respond to terrorism. I would feel if I was in this situation very abandoned by my country if they refused to pay for my release and I was going to end up being killed to make a point that not negotiating with a terrorist is more important than securing my release. Right. And especially in, in the reason I like this example is because, I, I mean, I don't like this example, but the reason this example is interesting to the discussion is it was it happened at the same time by the same organization and the different countries that handled it different had very obviously different results. So. It's a sort of convenient case study for us to see the countries that negotiated and paid the ransoms got their people back, and the countries that didn't, did not. Seemingly, this would be an argument to negotiate. Yes, if you're the individuals who are affected by this, I think it would be a compelling reason that negotiation is preferred. However, ISIS got tens of millions of dollars out of this process from the people whose countries and families did pay the ransoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think it would be hard to draw a line from that money to the killings, destruction, and just general instability that ISIS has caused in subsequent years. So it comes down to, do I find myself in my life to be more valuable than the people who might be victims when ISIS uses the money that has been paid to save my life. I'm pretty selfish. So I would say I would probably think my life was worth it, but I know that ideologically and morally, it's probably not. I think your life is worth it, Kelly. Oh, that's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. My life is worth (laughs) paying a ransom. Well, unless you happen to be living in Iraq or Syria in the years following this payment, And then we would have just written your death warrant by paying ransom for somebody else and giving ISIS the funds to eventually kill you at another time and place. The multiverse of Kellys. I'm less comfortable with the idea of other Kellys dying, I have to say. (laughs) If you put it like that, and it's not just random anonymous Syrians or Iraqis, and it's a whole bunch of other Kellys, I mean, you're missing out on a lot of witty banter if you're going to let those Kellys die. It kind of highlights how difficult this decision is. What seems like the obvious decision at the time, we pay the money, we get our people back. 15 out of the 23 lived, eight died. Of course, we want to be doing what the 15 did, which was paying ransom. But then how do we, yeah, how do we measure the impact of that ransom money later on down the line? And then how do we make a decision on, in the long term, which was the right choice? Je ne sais. Je ne sais pas. The second motivation that this policy has is to ensure that we don't give terrorist organizations a voice. I've got some shit that I want to say to Joe Biden, but I don't get to just call up his administration and give them a piece of my mind. And the worry here, I think, is that taking a hostage should not be seen as a golden ticket to the bargaining table with government leaders who hold the keys to some of the most impactful treasure chests in the world. 
So there may be people driven to desperate measures to make sure that they can be heard as individuals because there's no other mechanism unless you do something really noteworthy in a good way. How else are you going to get an audience with the president? And and you're talking about Americans trying to get an audience with the president. Mm-hmm. So now let's let's take that and move it to the other side of the world where you have somebody living in Iraq, for example, who is most certainly affected by American policy, but has even less of a chance of being heard within the American system. It's not difficult to fathom why they might be feeling as though this is their only choice to getting a voice, to getting heard. They can always throw shoes at our president. That worked one time. Maybe that's, again, a benefit of a policy like this being absolute and uniform is if you are that person in Iraq and you think, I don't have a way of being heard, this is my way of being heard, a policy like this being in place shuts the door on that and says, no, this is also not a way of being heard. If you take one of our citizens hostage, if you commit a terrorist act, it does not give you a ticket to the table with the American government. That's pretty alienating too, because there aren't many ways that the average Iraqi citizen could be heard by an American president. There are a few who've got access to education and resources to eventually become diplomats, ambassadors, things like that. But the average Iraqi citizen will probably just have to make peace with the idea that they're never going to get a chance to express their feelings to the president. But this all assumes that denying them the opportunity to engage with governmental leadership equates to denying them a voice. Because actually, in the example we talked about a second ago, when ISIS ended up executing the American and British victims, this actually gave them a media presence and gave them more of a voice, right? These beheadings catapulted ISIS into the minds of people around the world. I think that there's a a very strong argument that paying the ransom and dealing with this situation quickly and quietly would have actually given ISIS less of a voice, less attention, and less credibility than the alternative. The situation's a double bind because no matter what choices Americans and British government officials make, ISIS will use it to its benefit. They'll either get the sensationalism of committing these horrific executions, or they get funds which further their attempts for you know taking over the governments of Islamic countries. Or in this case, they get both. And they got both because of the composition of who they had kidnapped this time. And one of the biggest goals for organizations like this is recruitment. And this was a massive boon for ISIS recruitment because it was able to show a couple of things. They were able to say, look at the the United States, the great Satan, and look at how little it cares for its people. It was willing to, for not wanting to just pay money, it was willing to abandon its people. So the United States sucks. And at the same time, look at how powerful we are. We hold these American citizens in our hands. We hold their fate. And we are able to behead them publicly because we are powerful, we are right, we are justified in this situation. And that kind of propaganda is huge for recruiting uh, young, impressionable people to their cause who end up being the pawns that are used for future attacks. So in this case, paying a ransom and negotiation don't get us the desired results no matter how you look at it, which speaks to prevention as being the only real cure and making sure that people don't get alienated to the point where they want to join a terrorist organization. That's not what we're talking about today. No, but I I think that there is a, a point there that we have to address, which is sometimes there is no solution. We're sitting here asking the question, should we negotiate? Should we not negotiate? And I do think it's fair to say that in some instances, it doesn't matter. Whatever we do, we have no control over the outcome once we've gotten into a situation like this. But that's not to say that that's every case. I do think that there 
is a better or worse way of going about things in a lot of cases. And now that we've covered some of the attempted motivations for a policy like this, I think it brings us to some of the unique issues that it might have. And the the first harm that I think we need to consider is if we don't negotiate with a terrorist, it means we don't even talk to them. Right. And if you don't talk to them, how do you find a solution? Of of course, some examples, like we just talked about with ISIS, maybe there is no solution and there is no point to talking to these people. But there's certainly situations where engagement is going to be healthy. And we do know that there are instances in which negotiation and having a line of communication between governments and organizations that are classified as terrorists can produce effective results. And I think the example that would would speak to the power of this would be the example of what has happened in Ireland when um, we looked at the cessation of violence in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, 43% of terrorism is resolved politically. And uh, the other large chunk of terrorist prevention, I suppose, is done through policing efforts. So what you were mentioning earlier, Kelly, preempting this before it gets to the point where people see kidnapping or terrorism as their only way forward is probably our best solution. But even post-terrorism, what you're talking about in Ireland, Northern Ireland, the provisional IRA, which was the terrorist organization there, declared a final ceasefire in July of 1997. And after that, its political wing, the Sinn Féin, was admitted into multi-party peace talks on their future independence. And this resulted in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. And then subsequently in 2005, the IRA formally ended its armed campaign and decommissioned its weapons. None of this would have happened under a non-negotiation policy. So in this case, that engagement led to a much more peaceful situation that we have right now. It seems pretty evident that a blanket policy, which doesn't allow for nuance, would really shut the door on a lot of these opportunities. And I think negotiation itself means a lot more than just acquiescing to demands. Negotiation could be working collaboratively towards a situation that both parties can be satisfied with. And I think there are a couple of things we should note about this example, though, one of which being the split between the IRA and Sinn Féin. And this gives governments, like the British government in this example, the ability to negotiate functionally with terrorists while not saying that they are. You know, they have the excuse of saying, hey, we're not negotiating with the IRA, we're negotiating with Sinn Féin, which is a political organization as opposed to the terrorist IRA. Despite the success of negotiation in this instance to end the majority of the violent issues that were facing Ireland, there are still several splinter groups that have been formed as a result of the splits within the IRA. These include Continuity IRA and Real IRA. We're the real IRA. The other IRA was just a pretender, I guess. Well, I think they're, they're like, well, the other IRA capitulated and didn't stay true to our ideals of complete independence for Northern Ireland. And so screw them. They're the fake ones. We're the real ones. And and while there is definitely not the degree of violence that we saw in the late 90s, there still is some discord between these parties and the unified Ireland that many people are hoping to have happen still hasn't happened. And it's a point of tension between Ireland and the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So e- even though there's some issues here, though, and some semantics being played, I do think overall, it certainly suggests that negotiation can find solutions uh, in certain instances, which leads to um, the second unique issue of a policy like the United States has, this non-negotiation policy, and that is it is a blanket policy, right? They are not coming out and saying we usually won't negotiate with terrorists. They are saying we will never negotiate with terrorists. And I think that has some advantages and some disadvantages. 
A blanket policy works in theory because then every terrorist organization has the same expectation that they will not succeed because the United States will not amend its policy to work with them specifically because it never amends that policy to work with any terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were talking about earlier, where the, the potential outcomes are black and white, right? There is no gray area. There's no chance that you slip through the cracks. If you are a terrorist, you will never be negotiated with. And it's important that they get that messaging loud and clear in order for them to be discouraged from taking this action in the first place. Unfortunately, the world is not typically black and white or as clean as that. Right. There are many different countries, as we've already talked about when we were discussing the ISIS example, different countries have different policies towards negotiating with terrorists, which means that terrorist organizations might be successful with some countries in a way that they wouldn't be with the United States. Moreover, some countries define terrorist groups differently and organizations the United States regards as terrorists, other countries might identify as militias or rebel organizations or syndicate crime in a way that maybe it's not actually terrorism in the eyes of some other people. So (laughs) this idea of a blanket policy is already starting to break down, certainly internationally, but even within the United States, um, there's examples of families who have used other countries as intermediaries. So a U.S. citizen is taken hostage, say the U.S. family pre-Obama's declaration is not allowed to negotiate with these terrorists, but nothing is stopping this family from talking to a random person in Germany. And then nothing's stopping this random person in Germany from talking to the terrorists. And now serving as an intermediary between the two parties where functionally there is negotiation happening with this terrorist. Essentially, a policy like this doesn't hold water when any other individual outside of a country's jurisdiction can do the thing that the people within the country's jurisdiction can't do. So then the policy turns out to be, we will sometimes negotiate with terrorists. So that <laughs> that might seem reasonable. Like every once in a while, there would be somebody who has a legitimate claim. And I think even the word terrorist here, and this is what you were saying, Kelly, is, is hard to define sometimes. Um, It's possible that there's somebody, let's call them a freedom fighter instead of a terrorist. It's possible that a freedom fighter has a legitimate cause, such as independence or removal of troops from sovereign land or trading for prisoners who are being wrongly held in a detention center somewhere, potentially somewhere in the Caribbean, just hypothetically. Um, And so There are situations where you could conceptualize it being reasonable to negotiate with an individual who has taken a hostage. But then the problem with that is now everyone thinks that they have a chance, the reasonable people and the unreasonable, the ISIS's of the world. And ultimately, the way that countries have conducted themselves, including the United States, they they might actually have a chance. It's not just a psychological hope but there are inconsistencies with how everything is done to the point where they might actually achieve the ends they're hoping to because this blanket policy uniformly upheld. Right. And I think that's the issue is if every terrorist organization was ISIS and saying, hey, we're going to kidnap this foreign national and we're going to demand money. And if you don't give us some money, we are going to behead them. But then when you do give us the money, we're going to take it and we're going to fund future terrorist activity. All right. If that was everybody, then a blanket policy that says we're never going to negotiate with somebody like that seems to make a lot of sense. But a lot of times they aren't asking for money. And a lot of times, you know, they aren't ISIS. In 2002, for example, there's a group that kidnapped U.S. journalist Daniel Pearl. Uh, This happened in Karachi. And their demands initially were for better conditions for detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And even within the United States, a a huge portion of our population are echoing the same sentiment. Like it's unacceptable that we're holding people prisoner in this facility of Guantanamo Bay 
and the conditions that they face while they're being held from waterboarding, sleep deprivation, basically torture. Um, what did we call it? Advanced interrogation. Oh yeah. And more semantics. I love it. Right. So even in the United States, citizens are saying this is unacceptable behavior. So then when a foreign group makes the same demands or the same claims, it seems pretty reasonable, to be honest. Or it delegitimizes the people in the country who have the right to advocate for that principle and otherwise might actually achieve it if a terrorist organization is also asking for it. And therefore, the government won't respond to the terrorist demands to improve conditions. So demands from people like me or other folks who believe in due process would also be ignored. Yeah, I suppose that that's easy to say. But at the same time, we haven't had much luck changing it regardless. So um, true. If, if we've been failing through our democratic means as U.S. citizens, what kind of hope does somebody in Pakistan have? Uh, so maybe this is a, a legitimate way of trying to push the envelope forward on a cause that's seemingly justified. Well, ultimately, the United States government did not respond to the demands of the group that had kidnapped Daniel Pearl. And as a result of not having their demands met, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed of Al-Qaeda exploited the situation and Daniel Pearl was murdered for propaganda means. And then once again, this undermines organizations like that, where uh, at face value, we think, okay, well, maybe sometimes we can negotiate. Then it turns around, shoots us right back in the foot. And we're back to a policy of, nope, just easier to say never. It would be easier to say never if we actually meant it. But I think we've already identified that one of the failings of this blanket policy, aside from the fact that other countries have different standards, is that even the United States does not uphold this principle uniformly and does negotiate from time to time. One of the big controversies uh, related to this was the Iran-Contra affair, which most people have probably heard the name of. But what happened there was a U.S. attempt to free hostages held by Hezbollah in Lebanon. And the way that they tried to do this was by selling weapons to the government in Iran, which at the time was under an arms embargo, and then take the proceeds to fund the Contras in Nicaragua, a right-winged rebel group that was fighting the Marxist government at the time and engaged in behavior that could be considered, wait for it, terrorism. So not only did the United States government actively engage in negotiation, they ultimately facilitated terrorism because it was a type of terrorism they ideologically could get behind. Yeah, so they did it twice because they gave weapons to Iran, for one, which who knows what American soldiers those weapons were turned around and used against in the future. And then, yeah, B, they, they took the money from that sale and then gave it to another terrorist organization in a different part of the world, literally all over the world nonsense, all at the same time putting forward this policy of we never negotiate with terrorists. And it's not just Republican presidents who engage in this kind of inconsistency. During Obama's second term, he agreed to a prisoner exchange, or the government represented by Obama agreed to a prisoner exchange, returning five Taliban-affiliated prisoners from Guantanamo Bay to secure the release of Bo Bergdahl. This was extremely controversial among Republicans, not just because it constituted a negotiation with a terrorist organization, which, as I'll remind you, they have done themselves in the 80s, but Bergdahl had deserted his post in Afghanistan and his loyalty to America has been in question ever since. We don't know what types of motivations he had. What was he doing when he was being detained by enemy forces? So it, that's another instance where we can't even say that this was necessarily the right decision. So certainly the U.S. government is at worst hypocritical when it comes to implementing this blanket policy. At best, the U.S. government is creative in implementing the policy, and one of the ways that they use to get around this self-imposed non-negotiation is to define what a, quote, terrorist is in a relatively flexible manner. I think it might be interesting to dedicate a section of this episode to other kinds of organizations that use violence or kidnapping as a means of achieving their goals. 
Right. As we've mentioned, a lot of the organizations that are getting called terrorists do not necessarily have the same ideological bent as each other. And it depends on the country's definition when a government is engaging with those organizations. So there are other entities that do engage in violence to achieve ends, and sometimes they're ideological and sometimes they're financial. We're talking about drug cartels, syndicate crime organizations such as the mafia. And I know Josh is really excited to talk about this type of group, the Mm. pirates. (laughs) Pirates, yarg. What's a pirate's favorite letter? I know that there's an answer I should say. Which one should you say? R. (laughs) It's either R or the C. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So under these these, uh, non-terrorist but lumped with terrorist definitions, we can look back to Nigeria, for example where they refuse to pay ransom to kidnappers. Uh, Notice the term kidnapper is sort of all-inclusive here. And part of their motivation here is children uh, at an alarming rate are being kidnapped from boarding schools and held for ransom. Literally hundreds of cases over the last decade. And over 18 million US dollars have been paid as ransom during that period, both by families and the government. Exactly. So Nigeria has amended the country's terrorism law. Earlier this year, the president began to classify armed gangs who usually carry out these types of kidnappings as terrorists, which changes the way they are regarded legally in the country. Right. But even though we are definitionally calling them terrorists, I think there's some important distinctions here between all of the types of organizations we've just listed, most importantly, pirates and terrorists. Um, even though their actions are the same, their motivations are very different. Like you mentioned, they're not necessarily ideologically motivated, but most of the time it's a very rational cost-benefit analysis that they're going through. If I'm in Nigeria and there is a purse of over 18 million US dollars that has been paid as a ransom over the last decade, it is a profitable business venture to kidnap rich kids. And with that, Changing the way that they're defined by the government to terrorist organizations opens up legal avenues that cannot be opened up with other types of approaches to criminal justice. Typically speaking, at least in the United States, terrorists are regarded much differently than regular criminals, which means that they typically do not have the same types of rights when engaging with the justice system. And and so the question here, I think, is now that we've lumped these other groups in with terrorists and, and allowed us, you know, legally, even though we ignore the law half the time anyway, so I'm not even sure why this is important, but legally deal with them under policies like this. The question is, would that policy be more or less effective here? Um, so even though they're not terrorists, classifying them as terrorists and putting somebody with a profit motivation under a policy that says we will not negotiate seems as though it could target their decision-making calculus even more directly. If there's no other way to approach it, then I suppose this is the most effective way to do it. But I imagine that governments can strengthen their criminal penalties for kidnappings and the like without necessarily calling it terrorism. So there has to be some sort of benefit that they're seeing by keeping this designation they've just affirmed and not classifying other types of violent crime as terrorism as well. I think the benefit might come in the optics to the population. If the government is saying, hey, this is a crime family, they've committed a crime, but we just don't want to pay them to get your kid back. Maybe families are saying, hey, hold on, hold on. Like, this is our child. This is our family. We want them back. We're willing to pay the money to get them back. Right. But if the government calls them terrorists, then they're able to say this is a a national security issue. This is for the public welfare. This is an ideological thing. And there's just no way that we're able to negotiate with terrorists. So maybe it just gives them rhetorically a better tool to use in dealing with these organizations. I suppose that makes a lot of sense when we're looking at doing what's best for the good of all rather than individual circumstances. And I do think that the motivations we discussed early as they pertain to terrorists are going to be extra effective here because (laughs) let's talk about my favorite. The pirates, Somali pirates, have literally turned 
kidnapping and ransom into a business. I just want to be sure, Josh, that you understand that Somali pirates are not like flying the Jolly Roger and walking around with peg legs in the 16th century. I have watched Muppet Treasure Island enough times to know exactly what a pirate is. Thank you very much. That is the only definition of a pirate. All people who take up piracy do so with a tricorn hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if you don't have strings attached to you, you're not a pirate. <laughs> if you're not Kermit the Frog or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so jokes aside, the issue of Somali pirates are actually pretty dramatic. And it's become shockingly like a lesson from a business school textbook that I've read. <laughs> so the average ransom for a captured ship is usually well over $5 million. If the negotiations reach a sticking point, the pirates can begin threatening the crew to motivate the owners of the ship to settle. Ransom payments are <laughs> made in cash, dropped on the ship from a helicopter. I guess I thought that they were wiring the money or I don't know, but that is bananas that they mm -hmm. have to charter a helicopter that has, I don't know, burlap bags with dollar signs filled with <laughs> <Right>. cash. <laughs> and then the way that the ransom is distributed is even very specific. About 5% of the ransom goes to shore administration. So I assume that means that the, <laughs> there are secretaries who are helping the efforts of Somali pirates. 60% goes to the businessman funder of the terrorists kidnapping whatever of the pirates. And the remaining 35% is split between the crew and the other parties involved in the piracy. Well, that, that, let's take a second there. 60% goes to the businessman funder. It is literally like, I'm in the Bay Area. It's literally like a startup. You're, mm -hmm. going, to have your, you're going to have your investor who is going to invest in the pirate ship send this pirate ship out to kidnap, um, you know, legitimate uh, ships and legitimate cargo. And then they make a 60% profit on their investment. The nature of this with the international waters and the fact that these ships sail under different countries' flags and the owners of these ships do not want to lose a very valuable asset means that people do pay these ransoms to get their crew and their equipment back. And it's kind of a perpetuating issue as a result of it. Right. And this is where I think that a blanket policy makes a lot of sense because it's all of the decisions here are literally based on finances. If you have a ship with cargo that is worth, let's say, $10 million and pirates are demanding $5 million, all right, it sucks to lose $5 million, but it sucks less than losing 10. So easy decision. You pay your $5 million. On the pirate side of things, if you can get that guaranteed $5 million, you have your pirate ship flown under the Jolly Roger. I refuse to accept any other flag as flown over a pirate ship. You have a, your investor who sends out the boat and knows that if I pay this much money to buy a pirate ship and pay a pirate crew, I'm going to get this type of return back. All of this is just very easy decisions for everybody involved. And so the only way to stop this kind of criminal activity is to make the decision equally as easy in the opposite direction, saying, you will not get paid. There will be no ransom. We will find you. I have a very specific set of talents. Okay, <laughs> Liam Neeson. <laughs> we, we will hunt you down and make sure that this endeavor is not profitable. And the second, this is the big difference, I think, between pirates, syndicate crime, etc. The big difference here is the second it's not profitable, all motivation disappears. There is no ideological motivation that we have to deal with here, as we do in the, the example of terrorism. If they don't get any money in the process of doing this, the incentive to engage in piracy is non-existent. All right. Kelly, hmm. if I was kidnapped by pirates, how much money would you pay to have me released? Okay. First of all, I don't have that much money. I don't have $5 million. I don't know if you thought I did, but I don't. <laughs> all right. Well, how much would you pay? I could probably chip in a couple hundred. Oh my God, I'm screwed. All right. It sounds <laughs> like we might have to crowdfund my $5 million ransom. So to ensure my safe return from Somali pirates, please follow us at Facebook and Twitter at Indubitably Pod, so that you can be notified of the 
Save Josh from Somali Pirates GoFundMe campaign. That's going to be like the least popular GoFundMe. I'm sorry, Josh. I don't think think we're going to meet that goal. (laughs) Piracy isn't the only area in which there is a financial incentive to do crimes and treat it much like a business. In particular, the drug trade is very much operated like a business in a lot of aspects. Their motivations are very business-like, but the way that they protect and implement those motivations is very terrorist-like. It seems so outside the bounds of reality, but the type of grip that Pablo Escobar had over all of Colombia at the peak of his drug cartel organization was definitely wielding fear and terror as a tactic in order to achieve his ends to make sure that his business was successful. Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody like him kidnaps an individual and makes demands, and we say we're not going to negotiate, how else do we get them back? We Do we go to war with an entire country? Do we have to go to war with the government of Colombia in order to get our hostages back? Uh, I mean, that doesn't seem reasonable. So at that point, what are we left with? Ne- negotiation. Since it's unreasonable to literally go to war with countries like Colombia or Mexico or other areas in which drug cartels operate, the FBI has, for instance, allowed private companies to negotiate the release of hostages taken by certain Mexican drug cartels as they are not designated terrorist groups, even though they undoubtedly terrorize local communities. So I think once again, it's an example of hypocrisy when it comes to this policy. And to make themselves feel better, the government is getting creative with designations of what is a terrorist, who's doing the negotiating, is there an intermediary, where is it happening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Realizing that this blanket policy might not be a great idea, but not being willing to scrap it. Other organizations that operate under these same sort of business interests, in addition to drug cartels and Pirates, Pirates. Josh's favorite, would be the mafia. And a very interesting example of how the mafia has wielded sort of power over a situation that involved a kidnapping would be the case of John Paul Getty III. He's the grandson of J. Paul Getty, and he was kidnapped in 1973 by an Italian crime organization in Rome. He was 16 at the time and living alone in Italy as a bon vivant. He drank and did a lot of drugs and was like a nude model for artists, which seems really inappropriate for being 16. And he was actually drunk at the time of his kidnapping. It's Europe. It's Europe. Yeah, that's true. The organization demanded $17 million for his release. And the grandpa, J. Paul Getty, the OG, was literally a gangster about this. He was like, not going to pay. I don't believe in paying kidnappers. I have 14 other grandchildren, and if I pay one penny now, then I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. He sounds a lot like Nixon. Yeah, exactly. He he hit the nail on the head that as soon as people realize they can actually make a profit doing something like this, they're probably going to do it again. Mm -hmm. But the kidnappers got really frustrated with the fact that a ransom wasn't paid. And after about three months of having JPG3, a literal teenager, that they also had to feed and make sure was still alive. And they also kept him drunk most of the time. Three months of that got kind of exhausting. So they sliced off his ear. As you do. It was mailed to his family. (laughs) I mean, what else are you going to do? An ear is an obvious thing to cut off, right? It was mailed to his family with some of his hair and a note that said they had 10 days to pay the ransom or they would cut off his other ear. I like how they included hair with the ear. (laughs) like, aha, but this hair will prove that it's actually your grandson's. So the family did identify that it was his ear. His mother recognized the freckles, which I think is actually kind of horrifying. And adorable. (laughs) I know. The ransom was negotiated down to 2.9 million. So even after his family realized that their threats were credible, they still wanted to lessen how much money they were going to pay. But according to that first quote, I I don't believe in paying kidnappers. If I pay one penny now, then I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. $2.9 million is a lot of one pennies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Gettys. 
fairly well off. Mm -hmm. It seems like his family did value his release, but didn't do a lot to take care of him afterwards. And after the kidnapping, his drug use really amped up and he had a paralyzing stroke at the age of 25 from which he never fully recovered. And he died in his mid fifties. This is kind of a crazy example. And I think it almost summarizes the entire episode, right? Starting with the tough guy, never negotiate attitude, turning into the, oh shit, (laughs) maybe they're serious. I, I better actually think about this. Eventually finding a way to make the payment while still kind of feeling good about yourself. Like, well, I at least negotiated them down to $2.9 million. Victim gets home safely, but then in the long run, did it even really work out? Was any of this actually worth it in the end? I'm sure the family found value in getting their son home fairly intact and that he did get to live a life after his kidnapping. But let's take uh, JPG3 and use him as the metaphor for a country where, let's say in the Middle East, kidnappers take hostages, ransom is paid, we get the hostages back, but then that money over the next 20 years is used to destabilize the area even more, right? So what what do you think? I feel like we've covered a lot and we've covered both sides of this topic, some horror stories of we did pay the money and it didn't even matter, some hope of organizations, terrorist organizations that have been moderated and brought into a legitimate diplomatic political fold, all while this blanket policy, while being in existence, is sometimes followed and sometimes ignored. What do you think? Should we negotiate with terrorists? Should we not negotiate with terrorists? Should we sometimes negotiate with terrorists? Whatever we end up doing, I think it needs to be done consistently among all of the countries that could enter into negotiations with terrorists. I think if we're going to be categorical with it, we should never pay ransoms. And unfortunately, that will probably mean in the short term that people may die to see if countries are actually meaning it when they say that they won't pay ransoms. But if no country and no individual private citizen ever pays a ransom again, eventually there will be no incentive for any terrorist to kidnap and execute people. I do see value, however, in negotiating, specifically the kind of negotiation that is collaborative and leads towards peaceful resolutions. I don't think of negotiation as providing material support to terrorist organizations. And I think that there are ways to secure everyone's interests without giving in so to speak, to terrorist demands and treating them like legitimate people with legitimate stakes in global events is probably the most effective way to kind of enfranchise them as individuals and feel like they actually have a say in what's happening to them and to the world. So negotiation, yes. Giving in to their demands, no. Paying ransom, never. Mm. But I'm not sure what what the point of negotiating would be if they know coming into the negotiation that there is no chance ever that they're going to get the ransom they want. I don't know. I, I don't think that this policy is working at all. I don't think there's any evidence that it discourages kidnappers. Um, we've had it in place, as we said, since the 70s, and people are still getting kidnapped. Um, and I think that there is strong evidence that negotiation not only saves lives, but also can have a moderating effect on terrorist organizations. I'm certainly not saying that we should always negotiate with terrorists, but I don't think it's productive to be absolutist in the other direction either and say that we should never do it. I think that analyzing on a case-by-case basis, given the circumstances surrounding the identity of the kidnapper, their demands, the likelihood of repetition, etc., is a totally reasonable policy to implement. We want to thank you, as always, for joining us for today's episode of Indubitably. I have been Kelly. I have been Josh. And as we wrap everything up, I'm reminded of a very impactful film from the 20th century. Muppet Treasure Island? No, Josh, is not Muppet Treasure Island. (laughs) Damn it. I'm thinking of The Godfather. Okay, fine. A source of so many great quotes that could apply to this situation. The one in particular I think is especially important is... 
Finance is a gun. Politics is knowing when to pull the trigger. Ooh, I like that quote. But to be fair, I don't think that we can end an episode where you bring up The Godfather and we talk about negotiation on any other quote except for, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs>